Hello, and thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast from Prism Insurance Agency. As you know, we put in a ton of time and effort to make each of our shows as valuable as we can. If you find the information useful, please share this podcast with a friend by emailing it to them or sharing this on the social media site of your choice. Today we're going to talk about something that rarely gets talked about, and that's the area of domestic abuse. The statistics are staggering. A woman is beaten every nine seconds with women making up 85% of all domestic violence victims. Domestic violence is the largest cause of injury to women, and one in four will be a victim of domestic abuse in their lifetime. Another staggering statistic is that half of all women murder victims are killed by a spouse or someone they know. Those statistics are according to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Joining us today is author Jim Pulley, who has written the book Love, Loneliness, Abuse, and Murder. Jim himself is a victim of domestic abuse from the standpoint of being the son of a mother who was abused, and he's here to share his story with the hope that he might inspire someone to reach out for help to prevent their family from going through the same things that his family experienced many years ago. Welcome, Jim. Morning. Hey, good morning. I know today's topic is really different from something we're accustomed to do. One of the things we all deal with is death of a loved one. You have a story that is a little bit more heart-wrenching because it's a death that was maybe unexpected, being the victim of domestic abuse, and that was your mom. Can you tell us a little bit about your mom and what happened? Well, in brief, my parents, Jack and Pat, were married for nearly 34 years, and it was a good marriage, very happy. My parents were the ones that family members and friends expected to see at weddings and graduations and of course, funerals and family gatherings, holidays, so forth. But in February of 1986, February the 18th, my dad, Jack, passed away unexpectedly of a massive heart attack, and he was only 53 years old. And at the time, mom was 50. Everyone will eventually suffer a loss, but when it's unexpected and at such, in my mind, such a young age, mom really was devastated. She wasn't the type who could live alone, and I don't think, looking back, hindsight, she wound up in a pretty desperate state of mind when this whole thing began. In November of 1989, she took a trip out to California to visit her sister, Shirley, my aunt Shirley. She was a nice lady. She was a wonderful Christian woman. But her and her husband took mom to an Oceanside restaurant. Their reservation wasn't quite ready, so the maitre d' sent them downstairs to the club. And when they first walked into the club, my mom spotted a guy who she thought looked like my dad. And she made the comment to her sister, my Aunt Shirley, that I just saw a guy who looks like Jack. It was a fellow named Jim Massey. He was from California. I think he lived off his mother, but that's neither here nor there. But the two talked that night. They danced, and I know they exchanged phone numbers because he started a little long-distance communication with Mom. And by April of the next year, of 1990, he was in Texas. The first conversation that I personally had with the guy, he said, well, I'm here to marry my retirement. And I knew right away something was not right, right away. The tone of voice was always a little edgy, and he was a little cocky, arrogant. You just get that from talking to him over the telephone. Mom just blew it off and said, oh, he's such a big joker. He's always making jokes. And his jokes then became pretty obvious signs that he was full out attempting to push us away as family, to isolate Mom. And my family has never experienced anything at all like this, like an abuser who purposely insulates their lives, pushes people, friends, family, and so forth away so that, in most cases, it's a male, so that he can control his victim. 
by September of that same year, 1990, they were married. We really didn't have a whole lot of contact or communication with mom because right away, every time you'd call the house, he would always answer the phone. So he controlled the phone, he controlled mom, he controlled where they went, who they went out with, if they went out with anyone, which I don't think was the case very often. And I could see stress on her face when we were around, and obviously there was some weight loss. She really never looked healthy. And then it escalated to the point where on New Year's Day of 1994, we were all sitting around like most families will in a town just outside of Wichita Falls, Texas. Here is Iowa Park, Texas, small community. We were watching our college football, and me and our two sons, we're all sporty, and we all enjoy that day. And about 2.30 in the afternoon, phone rang, and it was my mother. I could tell she'd been drinking, and this is all in the book. I don't feel like it's necessary for me to hold back. It's just life, and it's the truth. But she said, Jim, he's hurt me. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, I'm hurting real bad. And I knew what she meant. So I said, where is he? And she said, he's passed out on the couch. And I told her, I said, Mom, I said, you and I both know this has been going on. And I said, it's time for us to take action. I said, if I drive from here, by that I meant Iowa Park, Texas, to where they lived, where she lived, it was her house, in Duncanville, Texas. That's a two-and-a-half-hour drive. I said, if I drive that far, we're going to do three things. I said, you're going to file a restraining order, you're going to file for divorce, and I'm going to change the locks on your house. And she actually hesitated before she answered, and she said, come on. The first thing I did is I walked into our youngest son's bedroom, and I grabbed a little t-ball bat. It was a 27-inch aluminum baseball bat. Got my shoes and got in the truck. Of course, my wife, she's running in circles. Don't go. You can't uh, settle down. I said, mm-mm. <laughs> this is it. I got in the truck and ran by my brother's house. And I only have one brother, no sisters. I got Jack, who's a couple years older than I am. On the way, I told him what was going on. As I say in my presentations, I guess there's a blessing that they didn't live closer to me because if they did, I'd probably still be beating this guy. So along the way, between Iowa Park, Texas, and Duncanville, I settled down just enough to come a little closer to sensible decisions. I actually went by the police station first in Duncanville. My mother worked for the city of Duncanville. So all the detectives, all the police officers, all the firefighters, all the administration, everyone within the city of Duncanville knew her, and they all liked her. They all thought a lot of her. So I went by and rang a little outdoor buzzer, and of course, this was a Saturday. New Year's Day of 94 was a Saturday, and it was about 5 o'clock. It was starting to get darkish, you know, it was dusk. So I rang a little buzzer, and lady came up to the little speaker. They had the shades drawn, so she couldn't see me, I couldn't see her, and may I help you, and I told her what was going on. And I said, if you don't get a squad car up to 215 Hillcroft Street, I said, you're going to find him in a heap in the front yard. She was saying something while I was walking to the truck. Jumped in the truck and took off, and I saw two squad cars going down Main Street in Duncanville. My brother and I ran the red light and pulled right in behind him, and he was kind of semi-panicking because we were going 60 miles an hour down Maine. Now, we got to the house. Of course, I hopped out of the truck, and I said, pretty cliche, but I meant it when I said it. I said, fellas, all I need is five minutes, and then you can come in. He said, no, nah, get back in your truck, get back in your truck. Well, I, I never really got back in my truck. I stayed about 20 or 30 feet behind him as they approached her door, and, of course, Jim Massey, he answers the door, opens the door, and right away they cuffed him and took him out the car, and I walked up right behind him, and Mom was standing in the doorway. He'd beaten her so bad that all of the makeup was off her face and it was swollen. She was in obvious pain. So we took her back in and set her down, and she kind of released all her emotions, and she cried pretty hard because I know looking back that as a parent now, 
Well, I don't know how she felt, but I know she was embarrassed. She was an intelligent woman. She never intended to hurt anybody. And I know she was a strong enough person to know that she had gotten herself into a bad situation and she wasn't reaching out for any kind of help because I feel like in her mind two things. One is I think she actually thought she could change this idiot. And secondly, she felt strong enough and she thought she could get herself out of this situation by herself without asking for any help, without revealing all the horrific violence that she was experiencing that she lived with. So I think, too, those things were the biggest factors of her remaining in that isolation and in that environment. Turns out he'd thrown her during that day, he'd thrown my mother, who was only about five foot two at best, 120 pounds, 125 pounds, very attractive woman. But he had thrown her across her kitchen seven times, and at one point he threw her down on the floor so hard he'd broken her tailbone. So we took her to the emergency room, and of course you can't put a cast on a broken tailbone, so that was some long-suffering. And in my book, Chapter 7 would include personal, handwritten notes that my mother kept in a day planner. And those notes start two weeks prior to this incident. So it takes you from the middle of December of 1993 through this beating that she took and all the pain and the rehab she had to go through and her personal writings carry her thoughts up through May of 1994. So there's about six months of actual, I didn't change one word, one notation. That was difficult, but I felt like that she'd done it for a reason. I know she was scared in this relationship. I feel like she had a sense that something awful was going to happen, and she just wanted someone to find this to know exactly what was going on. So I feel like I'm a voice for my mother, so I made that Chapter 7. 90 or 95% of Chapter 7 is nothing but those day-to-day notes that she was taking about the roller coaster of emotions that she went through within that six-month period. And it includes, like I said, it includes the fact that she took this beating and he just beat her up in a rage. Really never any explanation of why. He'd been drinking since about 11 o'clock that morning, and who knows what triggers someone that is that violent and that callous to attack at the time, a 59-year-old woman that's five foot two and 120 pounds, defenseless, essentially. The next event that occurred was my mom's birthday in March of 95. She turned 60. So we invited her up to our house. Of course, he was not involved, and she knew that. So she came up. We had a really nice time. We still have some really nice pictures from that day, that evening, and we had family. My brother and his family all came over, and we had a ton of laughs. It just felt more like her again, and I thought, you know, this is good that she's rising above this person that she'd married. My mother's birthday was March 17. That was the last time we saw her alive, because on March the 9th of 1995 is when he made three decisions, he being Jim Massey, made three decisions. One is to pull a single-shot twenty-two caliber revolver, and with a single-shot revolver, tells us that you have to pull the hammer back before the weapon will fire. So he chose to pull the gun, to pull the hammer, and to pull the trigger. And he shot my mother in her master bedroom in her right cheek. So through all this, there's not much comfort knowing how and what happened, but we really don't think she suffered other than the obvious abuse. We got the call about 4 o'clock in the morning on Monday morning the 10th. It's bizarre. I guess that's the best word I can come up with. That's when the floodgate opened. Of course, we tried to drop everything. We had the time. Our youngest son, Tyler, was 13, and our daughter was 
Patricia. She was 15, and our oldest son was 20. So we had responsibility at the house. And, of course, we made arrangements, my wife and I, and I believe it was my wife and I. When you go through things like that, some of the facts just don't stick with you. But I'm reasonably certain that our daughter went with us. She was close to my mom. We made the drive, threw some clothes in a bag, and drove down there to Duncanville. And that's when the investigation ramped up to full speed. Of course, they didn't arrest him right away. They had to build the case, had to build enough evidence, you know, within our legal system. He was innocent until proven guilty. So Chapter 9, what I've done is under the Freedom of Information Act, I have used most of the police reports from the investigation from the very beginning, from the first call that there was a person with a gun in the front yard on Hillcroft in Duncanville, Texas. And the reason that the first call came in that there was a person with a gun in the front yard was that the neighbor had come out because after he killed my mother, he went to the neighbors on both sides, beating on the door, saying someone had shot my wife. So the one neighbor had a gun, and he grabbed his gun because if there's someone shooting up the neighborhood, he was going to defend his property. And he'd come out with his weapon trying to keep this guy, Jim Massey, from re-entering the house. He grabbed him. I spoke to the neighbors. I talked to everyone. And he said, Jim, he said, I grabbed Jim Massey. And I said, how do you know that the person that shot your wife isn't still in the house? Of course, we know how he knew. He was the one that shot her. But the neighbors had called the police and said, you know, I see a guy in a front yard with a gun. So the police had no idea when they went to the house what they were going to expect. And that's why I felt it was important to use their words, how they'd written it. Sometimes they were exhausted. As an example, uh, Detective Alvin Sims when you look at the times that he's writing his reports and the days, I bet he was up 48 hours easily writing reports, working the investigation, talking to people, following up on leads. Because like I said, they all knew and loved my mother. So she was one of their own. So they worked incredibly hard and intense. The intensity in their reports, you can just, you can feel it. And of course, they're still my friends and we've had dinner with several of the officers and we stay in contact. They're like family to me and they always have been. So. Chapter 10 and 11 deal with the aftermath, the funeral, all the things that happened afterward. I go into some of the details of the trial, how that all turned out, and I end the book on Chapter 12. It's interesting that in 2007, I decided to get involved with a Bible study, and our Bible study was using a book. Forgive me, I don't recall the name of the book, but we went around the table. All the men involved in our Bible study, they all took a chapter to lead the group. Well, when it came to my turn, the leader of our Bible study said, okay, Jim, you'll take chapter whatever it was, chapter 9 or 10, I believe it was. He said, that's on forgiveness. <laughs> In 2007, I've always told myself I wanted to write a book, and certainly I hadn't started it or even thought of what it looked like or anything. In 2007... But he went around the room just randomly picking out chapters of men, and I just happened to be the guy to pick up on forgiveness. And I said, well, men, I have something to tell you before you decide whether or not I'm going to take forgiveness. And I told them, and they had no idea what had happened with my mom. And they all agreed that that's probably the best chapter for me. So chapter 12 is titled Forgiveness, and that's going to be an unfinished chapter for many years to come. But that was part of the story that, I try not to dwell on, but I know that's part of life, that's part of getting past bad things that happen to us in life, because, you know, you'll never get over them, but you have to find a way to not find yourself curling up in a fetal position and giving up. I feel like that's not God's plan for us. He puts us on this earth, and life isn't easy, 
but there are ways, there are resources that we can truly find a strength to get past the negatives in this life and look for the good, look for God's blessings. When I sign my books, I usually will refer to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16, and it reads something along the lines of, don't forget to help others and to share, because it's with such sacrifices that God is pleased. So when you read it on any given day, it could mean a little something different, but it boils down to one thing. We are meant to help each other, whether it's through personal struggles, a loss of a loved one, marital problems, if you're hungry, if you need housing, whatever it is. God just wants us to help others because it's pleasing to him and to share. In my mind, when I started my book in 2009, one, it was to help me get it out from inside because when things like this fester inside of you, it tends to make you erupt. I refer to it, I use the analogy of it being like a volcano. It just builds up and it builds up and nothing ever good comes out of a volcano. I mean, other than the creation of an island, but when it comes out, it's usually hot, it's spewing, and it's nasty. When things like this build up inside of you and you start to spout off, those are words that have just come out that you probably didn't intend to say, but they come out anyway, and you can't take them back. So if you allow things like this to fester inside of you and you don't find a way to release it, you're going to hurt yourself, your family, your personal relationship. I've lived through all this, I know. You could hurt your professional career, your life, a lot of things. And it's usually negative. So you have to find the motivation to find that one thing. If it's just one, it could be two or three things. But find the main thing that will allow you to vent without hurting others. When I started my book, I had to vent. So if you read my book, you'll feel a lot of anger. But it was best for me to share and to get it out. The book's been out a year. I've had some very nice response. What we do with the proceeds from the sale of my book is we donate them to a place here in Wichita Falls. It's called Faith Refuge. It's the only women's shelter between Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and Dallas, Texas. And that is a lot of area. It's got 124 beds in it. It's designed strictly for women and their children. They have 12-month Christian programs set up that the women can elect to get into and to follow. They have one area for indigent care if they just want to come and go. That's their privilege. They try not to turn anyone away. Of course, you know, no drinking, no drugs, or anything like that. You have to come in with the right frame of mind, and they're there to help. The facility is about 25,000 square feet. And to date, I've been able to give $3,180 to Faith Refuge. We've also created a website. It's kind of an all-encompassing spot where you can go and you can access resources to many situations, mainly domestic violence. There are quite a few links there are phone numbers held within the book that you can call. The 800 numbers deal mostly with teen runaways and teen suicide because the majority of teens who run away are running away from abuse. We've created a website. It's called Pat Can Help. Since mom's name was Pat, I felt that was the best naming of a website we'd come up with was Pat Can Help. You can access the Facebook page from there, and I say that because it's open to the public. And you can also see some photos of Faith Refuge, of me giving a couple of presentations. But mainly it's the comments from people who have read my book. I also have book reviews at Amazon.com and Barnes & Noble's website. I believe right now I have one book review, but they're very heartfelt, and I appreciate people just taking the time to do it. And so far, both of those websites, my book has received five-star ratings. So I'm very confident when I hand my book to someone that it's, there's a potential of being able to help people. Because so I get that comment quite a bit, your book helped me. That's gratifying to me because if we can just help one, 
family to either get through something, get past something, or to prevent something from happening like this. It's really important. I feel like, sad to say, but the main age group that's affected by abuse, domestic violence, is young ladies from 20 to 24 years old. And to me, if I can get out and visit with young girls on college campuses, hopefully that would have an effect in a positive way. Or if we could just get the website out to women of all ages. Because if they see trouble brewing and they don't know what to do, there's several good reads. We have 34 books donated to the Duncanville, Texas Public Library in my mother's name. There's several good subjects touched on by the books, and you can access those books online through Pat Can Help. Pat Can Help, too. You get a sense of who my mother was, favorite colors, her favorite song is on there. She liked to laugh. She liked to have fun. She was a nice lady, smart, and she was a lot of fun to be around. So it's sad that that person took those qualities away they stole those. he actually did he stole those away from all of us not just her it helps me every time i talk about it so in my own small way i'm helping myself get past some things and i take this from my wife you know sherry's the one that told me you have to get past this and she's smart enough to know that we'll never get over it but she knows when to kick me in the pants and that was one of those times that i was trying to curl up and like i said in the fetal position and just lay down and cry oh woe is me and I know I'm not the only one, and that's the key. People need to understand that this can happen to anyone. Domestic violence isn't based on where you live or your financial situation or the color of your skin. It has nothing at all to do with that. It's choices that people make, and you have the choice to get yourself away from a bad person. And there are resources and there are ways to do it. My main motivation is to help others and allow people to read a true story. My book is 110% fact and it's true. Double check some things. My memory was still pretty accurate. I think there were only a couple dates that I really didn't clearly remember, but all the facts and everything that happened just fell right into place. Well, Jim, we appreciate you sharing your story today and hopefully still continuing on your path of healing and getting past this as Sherry wisely has suggested. And we certainly wouldn't pretend for a moment to try and understand or try and relate to what you've been through and only our sincere hope today and having you part of this program was to hope that if any listener out there today is dealing with anything similar to this that they can hear your story and be inspired and motivated to reach out for help because that's of course the only way to try and reverse what's happening to them at this point and the resources you know the fact that you've taken such a terrible circumstance and tried to turn it to a positive by developing the website, again, which is patcanhelp.com, plus the book, which the title is Love, Loneliness, Abuse, and Murder. The title represents the stages of mother's life. That's where that comes from. Right. Certainly are two resources that if anyone, again, listening, has any way to relate to this and going through something anywhere close to similar, regardless of their circumstance, certainly they're not alone. Sadly, today there's too much of this thing going on, and our country is certainly in need of lots of healing. So we appreciate that you took the time to share your story today, and I certainly hope that you can continue on your path of healing, and our certain prayers are with you, and we appreciate you sharing the resources that you've made available to us and to our listeners today. Well, I sure appreciate the opportunity to potentially help others and for you all to allow me to be on your show. You bet, Jim. Thanks, and God bless, and God bless to Pat. Oh, good. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week, and tune in again next week as we explore another phase of the real wealth process. 
And remember, if anything you heard in today's show you'd like to get more information about, contact your Real Wealth Advisor. Also, if you feel that any of this information will be helpful to a friend or family member, just click the Forward to a Friend button. This copyrighted program and its contents is given with the understanding that neither the hosts, guests, nor station render legal, medical, accounting, tax, or other professional advice. The information and opinions expressed here are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendation for any individual situation or security. For specific assistance, you should seek the services of a competent professional. To learn about a specific investment option, ask your Real Wealth Advisor for a prospectus. Please read the prospectus carefully about the fees, expenses, and risks before investing. Real Wealth Advisors offer security and investment advisory services through Woodbury Financial Services Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC, and registered investment advisor, P.O. Box 64284, St. Paul, Minnesota, 55164. Real Wealth Advisors and Woodbury Financial Services Incorporated are not affiliated entities. This is Real Wealth Weekly on the Real Wealth Advisor Network. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's podcast from Prism Insurance Agency. We've got additional information and links in our show notes, which you can click on to learn more. If you have any questions about any of the topics covered or would like to learn more, you can go to our website, www.myprisminsurance.com. You can reach out to us on Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter. Call us at 951-243-2800 or email me directly at prob at myprisminsurance.com. The email is in the show notes as well. Once again, thank you so much for tuning in, and have a wonderful week.